this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. And welcome to another episode of New Book in Asian American Studies, podcast of New Books Network. I'm Melody Lee, a co-host of the network. My guest today is Kavika Guillermo. Kavika is the pen name for Christopher Patterson, a creative scholar and assistant professor at the University of British Columbia's Social Justice Institute. He is the author of Stamped, an anti-travel novel published this year, and Transitive uh, Cultures, Anglophone Literature of the Trans-Pacific, published earlier this year as well. His academic work concerning queer theory, social justice, and trans-Pacific empire can be found in American Quarterly, Games and Culture, and Malice. His short fiction, written as Kavika, can be found in the Cimarron Review, Feminist Studies, Drunken Boots, Smoke Lawn Quarterly, and the Hawaiian Pacific Review. He writes monthly blogs for Anomaly magazine, and he's the prose editor for the Decompi magazine. Kavika is the Hawaiian Filipino name given by his mother. Today, we are talking about his first novel, Stamped, an anti-travel novel published by Westphalia Press in 2018. Um, he's very prolific, as you can tell, and we are looking forward to talking about this book with him. This novel describes Skyla travels to Southeast Asia with only $500 and a death wish. After months of wandering, he crosses paths with other dejected travelers, including a short-fused NGO worker called Sophia and Arthur, a brazen aspect, abandoned by his wife and son, and Winston, an intellectual exile. Bound by pressure-fueled self-destruction, the group founders from one Asian city to another, confronting the mixture of grief, uh, betrayal, and discrimination that caused them to travel in the first place. Stamped will appeal to uh, many readers, uh, especially of those of uh, literary fiction and travel writing interests, and those with an interest in Asian and Asian American experience. According to Shang Shi Wang, the author of Home Base and Americanese, Guillermo's novel teaches the readers how to engage the world and reveals the very best about being a traveler rather than a tourist. We follow not only a vivid visual adventure across Asia, but also a linguistic journey into understanding new language and the definition of we that is inclusive and empowering and revealing. So now, uh, let's welcome Kavika Gilmo. Hi, uh, thank you, Melody. Thanks so much for having me and for that kind introduction. Yeah, thanks for being here, and uh, we look forward to talking to you about your new book, novel. So before going into specific topics, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you come about writing this novel? And uh, I also know that you're a very prolific um, academic and fiction writer, and it's not easy to be both. And how do you face writing as in both roles? Uh, well, 
Yeah, well, thank you for the question and for the opportunity to come and talk about the book and for introducing me as both um, academic and uh, fiction writer. I notice in most introductions, people usually either choose one uh, for whatever reason. So thank you, because I do see those two things as not necessarily um, opposed, as I think a lot of people would. Um, and I, so I, I got my PhD at the University of Washington in literature, um, and literature has played a huge role in my life, um, especially ethnic literature, in being able to kind of learn more about myself. And so I think as a literary scholar, especially, it's not a huge leap um, to be writing fiction. Um, but I, I started writing a lot of this novel in 2006 and 2007. Um, and in 2006, I um, I was only around 19 years old, and I had this kind of existential crisis, I suppose, uh, where I was raised in a very religious environment, um, a kind of post-racial environment as well. Um, and I was raised in, in Las Vegas. Uh, and so I, I was just very kind of um, broken <laughs> by the point I had graduated college and uh, I could only get work in a kind of service industry. You know, I was I worked for five years as a, um, you know, selling tickets to movies and things like that. And so um, I decided to just... Um, go around the U.S. Uh, without, a, you know, I was hitchhiking for the first half for about five months. I was um, traveling around the U.S. as a kind of way to um, try and experience new things and break out of that. Um, and eventually I started to pick up what people call the travel bug. And I started to, um, and then I moved to South Korea and taught in a small town called Gimhae. Um, and, I, you know, I guess being the kind of Asian guy in most spaces, um, including growing up, um, I was usually used to kind of sitting in the background <laughs> as a kind of wallflower. And so when I was in South Korea, if anyone has ever taught English there or traveled around South Korea much, um, it's very heavily like party oriented culture. Uh, and so me being in the background, uh, witnessing all of this and witnessing the way that travelers and expats uh, were behaving in a very unrestrained way, uh, you know, and it wasn't just the alcohol, it was also <laughs> having traveled from uh, from their own spaces, from America, from other countries. Um, mm. And it almost seemed like they seemed to lack an id, or seemed to lack a, a, a super ego. And it was like pure id, uh, in the sense that they just kind of said whatever came to their mind. And there was a kind of relief there, in that they were no longer using this kind of coded language. Um, and that they were, um, for the first time in many of their lives, acting the way that they wanted to act. Uh, and of course, that way of acting could also be horrible for some of the locals. Um, and so I try to write about that in the novel. Um, and so I basically spent a lot of time um, for about the next 10 years from 2007 on um, traveling a lot in Asia, living in Asia, in China, in Hong Kong, um, and keeping myself in this kind of background role and just absorbing people's stories. And, you know, usually when someone's gone up there and they, they've gone to the dance halls, they've done all of the stupid stuff they're going to do for, for that night, they come back to the bars to open at 5 a.m. and they talk to the wallflower Asian guy who's still there. Um, and so I got to hear a lot of uh, amazing stories from people. And these weren't like travel stories. These were stories about the way they were brought up, right? And the kind of violence of the families that they were in, uh, the communities that they came from, um, and how they never wanted to go back to America. You know, they had they all had friends or relatives who had um, uh, died from the lack of health care in America. That was a big issue. Um, a lot of this mm -hmm. happened during the Iraq war. Um, and so a mm -hmm. lot of us were just, just felt dejected and horrified by what the U S was doing. Mm -hmm. um, and for a lot of us who are minorities or 
um, you know, queer identified, it was very uh, freeing to go overseas. Um, even mm -hmm. and even as we had to then establish a new ethics for how to act overseas. Uh, and so I, when I went back to the University of Washington, when I went to graduate school at the University of Washington, um, I continued to travel to Asia. And I just realized, uh, because I love teaching travel literature, that travel mm -hmm. literature did not have these stories in it. You know, they didn't mm -hmm. have the stories of the peoples whose friends and family um, had harassed and, and beat them. And, and then they had traveled for that reason, right? They didn't have mm -hmm. that many stories about um, the racism people had witnessed and then how they had come to Asia or to other spaces to resist, um, to resist that. Like most travel literature is not, is more focused on trying to represent the place and trying to bring people to that place rather than um, on the reasons why they left, right? Mm -hmm. and so I started to realize that I really had a, a project and I really wanted to um, acknowledge these people and these bodies, um, even though most, uh, even though a lot of people might think that they are not very ethical people or that they are not very empowered people, right? they don't really toe the line of nationalism um, in the way Americans are expected to. And But I still felt that it was important to have their voice yeah, thank you so much for sharing your experience. And I'm uh, really enlightened by your idea of, you know, like uh, talking about the vulnerabilities of home and then why they have left. And in fact, that relates to my own research a lot, um, being like the reasons behind why these immigrants have left their home country and uh, what, what are the forces behind it. So you mentioned that you have taught courses on travel literature. And, uh, and as you mentioned, earlier that yeah a lot of travel literatures uh, in the existing scholarship actually focus on oh like the you know the new places and how they are the route and route experience and what are some of your favorite uh, travel literature and how does it affect your writing and how do you position yourself and your work in among these travel literatures um, so I did mention that I was um, I, I was raised for about seven years in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. I think that might for anyone who's ever lived in Vegas, especially there's no surprise I think from them in the way that I would see travel and tourism. Mm -hmm. um, and like I said, a lot of my family is from Hawaii, and so from that context, travel and tourism, uh, you don't come out thinking of it as a rosy kind of like uh, this is you know uh, as as a benevolent kind of institution. Right, once you've been okay. long enough in those spaces, um, yeah. you know, and so, and I think there's something fundamental about being a local, uh, fundamentally uh, intrusive and violent when a tourist asks you to do something, or when you're when you're meant to perform for a tourist, or you know, as a kind of client role. Um, and I was never good at performing, even though I worked in service industry for a long time. Um, I hated it very much, having to smile for someone who was treating me um, in a degradating way, right? which is what you're kind of made to do. Someone who's expecting me to smile and act like this happy local um, as if they're doing me a favor. Uh, and so mm -hmm. I think uh, traveling around Asia um, with that disposition made it very difficult to accept anyone's um, service or help without really empathizing. Um, and I think the characters in my novel all feel this way too, because there are mm -hmm. all of them except for one really come from a very lower class background um, and they take, they try not to take for granted, or they feel very guilty when they do take for granted the, uh, mm -hmm. the thing that travel does to other people, um, to the locals that they're in the spaces that they're in. 
Um, and so I feel like I developed just a form of movement. Um, one of the books that really influenced me as an academic and as a writer was um, Edward Said's Representations of the Intellectual, mm-hmm. which I, I give that to grad students, you know, for free because I think it's such an important book. Um, but he talks about the exile, um, intellectual exile as a perspective or as a, as a state of never being fully adjusted um, and tending mm-hmm. to avoid and even dislike the kind of accommodations that one is given, whether they're national or community or whatever. Right. So mm-hmm. he describes this as a kind of restlessness, um, being constantly unsettled, but in that being unsettled, one is also unsettling others around them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that describes well what my experience traveling was like, um, and also the travel literature that I like to, um, to teach now, now that I've learned more about it. Um, and so there's James Baldwin is usually my, uh, the one I, I, uh, I, I like the most as far as like an, an essayist who speaks, um, about that experience that we were talking about, which is, um, having escaped a country rather than trying to go to a certain place. Um, but Zora Neale Hurston wrote amazing travel literature. Uh, Jimika Kincaid, of course, is one of the big names. Um, and then there's academics like Sadia Hartman, who, um, you know, her last book, Lose Your Mother, I think is just an incredible, one of the best travel um, books uh, ever written. But it's it's kind of seen more as an academic book. And it's about her going uh, going to Ghana. Um, mm-hmm. But the way that she reads the spaces around her is, is uh, very important. Um, and so I... I try to think of those examples and there's a lot of Asian examples that I also um, pull a lot from throughout the novel that I think readers would recognize like Majian's Red Dust um, is, mm-hmm. is in there. Um, Lawrence Chua's Go by the Inch. Arzamora uh, Lindmark's uh, Leche, which is a novel. Both of those last two novels are about gay kind of brown men traveling around the Philippines and Malaysia and Thailand. Um, and I wrote mm-hmm. about both of those novels in my, uh, in my academic book as well. So Again, this is a kind of sharing of resources. Yeah, wow. Very engaging, interesting. And um, so as you uh, tell us, uh, us that it seems like you incorporated so much elements in your novel. So how do you define the genre of this novel? Like it's, it seems like it's not purely, um, you know, it's not purely just a novel and it seems has a lot of elements of engages, think, really thinking about the topic of, travel or anti-travel or cosmopolitanism and exile and all these things in some way is pretty academic as well. So do you see this as a mix of genre? Uh, I approach writing very much within genre terms because I think, like you said, I do write in in different genres and so I have to really account for that. And so with Stamped, I was really... um, I think part of what I was doing was trying to write in a style that wasn't uh, that was kind of reacting a bit to the tourist guides, uh, the the travel books that um, that just kind of litter every like tourist destination. My thinking behind that is I didn't want to play the gaze of the empire, uh, mm. the gaze of the nations. I didn't want to provide an experience that people would want to just go and travel and experience for themselves. I think one way of of doing that is to shift and play with the style. And I think this is a problem with travel literature in general, is that um, when I started to pitch my book as a kind of travel narrative, travel literature book, um, the biggest response that I got, and I still get this response from readers, is that, you know, travel literature is supposed to make me want to go to that place. Your book does not do that. (laughs) And I think that's that's the worst... um, uh, 
the worst litmus test for um, for a travel book, right? We're because unless you're working for, unless you're hired by Lonely Planet or some mm-hmm. institution, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. you're you're under no obligation whatsoever to try and make the reader want to go to that place. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I didn't understand at all why that was being pushed upon the novel so much. Um, especially when, like you said, some parts of the novel um, are kind of parodies of, of um, travel narratives. Mm-hmm. Um, the blog posts in the novel, for example, use the, uh, you know, they use the you narrative, mm-hmm. which is what you see a lot in travel, um, travel blogs and things like you taste this and then you go to this place and you absorb the smells. And so I was trying to play yeah. with, with those, um, those forms uh, and so I ended mm-hmm. up calling it an anti-travel novel just to, because I just hated people thinking that this was supposed to make them want to go there. Um, when yeah. I think the novel is really indifferent to to that, like um, mm-hmm. I think Americans should travel much more than they often do, but they also should do it critically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think a lot of the story of the novel is about how these travelers are put in these positions um, and then, and how they enact power in those positions when they never had power or much power or privilege in the United States. Mm-hmm. Right? And so they're coming to understand how the United States is, is this global empire, how even when they feel so disempowered at home or at, in the U.S., mm-hmm. they become these, these agents of power, these colonial agents, regardless of um, whether they're even aware of it or not. Yeah, I- agree and I really uh, feel that your novel successfully pushed us to think so much about travel itself right as someone who travels a lot myself and I always thought that travel could be a means of fulfilling myself and becoming wholesome but uh, after reading your novel it really makes me to think of oh what is travel itself like or in some way is they is that actually an escape or of a state of life or a state of mind or existential crisis that you talked about, right? So in terms of this anti-travel, uh, in some way, is it a um, critique of anti-capital and anti-cosmopolitan since we, we talk about globalization, cosmopolitanism so much in this age? Is it a critique of that? Um, yeah, I th- I hate to say that the novel is critiquing a particular thing, even though we just talked Mm -hmm. about travel literature. So I think it's very much responding to a lot of travel literature. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think I I have a hard time answering that question for that reason, because when I think of it as a critique, it's very difficult to see its artistry. And and so I try Mm -hmm. not to flatten it into that. Mm -hmm. Um, But the characters in the novel are dealing with a very, very deep problem. Um, which is the problem of uh, America's past in Southeast Asia and, and Asia in general. Mm-hmm. And that is a problem that there is no easy answer to, that traveling to those places might help us understand that history and reveal some of that history, but it's not going mm-hmm. to cure anything. Um, and I think that mm-hmm. the characters start to go more insane <laughs> as this yeah. dawns more and more upon them. Um, not only that there is this sordid history um, uh, you know, and we can choose mostly any country, but uh, how in Cambodia, for example, more more bombs were dropped in Cambodia by the U.S. than any than all the bombs in, that were used in World War II combined, mm-hmm. um, and that was a secret and, and illegal war. Uh, and then there's just the history of American colonization in the Philippines, right? Um, mm-hmm. 
met by atrocity after atrocity. Uh, there's the bombings in the South Pacific. There's, there's, you know, that leads to today's drone bombs, which kill an estimated 20% civilians um, around the world. And this is um, all things that reveal themselves more when one is traveling and doing so in a kind of critical way. Uh, and it's a really, really hard reality to face. Um, even when you're a minority in America and you've kind of faced a lot, it's still very, very difficult um, and so as the characters begin to understand that this problem that they're facing is so much larger than they thought and so much more less easy to conquer, um, they begin to, of course, feel very angry about it. And that anger doesn't translate immediately into anything productive, right? And so I think the, the crucial arc, the, the, the crucial theme of the novel is what to do with that anger once, it's, mm-hmm. once the violence of the past has made itself apparent. Right. Um, and as Audre Lorde um, in the famous essay, you know, where she talks about anger, talks about how uh, we need to make that disharmony, that discord of anger into something harmonious. Right. We need to orchestrate it into something um, that we can deal with and that we can keep moving along with. And so there's uh, one of my characters, uh, Sophia, who's um, Cambodian refugee. Uh, who's mm-hmm. one of the most um, disillusioned characters because she mm-hmm. had to put her hopes in this NGO. Um, mm-hmm. She has this realization as she's being more and more self-destructive, right? And the way, she, uh, the way I put it or the way she puts it is that she realizes that there's no, there's no like hidden uh, cord that she can just cut that would send the whole imperial apparatus crashing down upon itself. Um, and that all that anger mm-hmm. that she feels uh, that that's actually part of the symptom of this greater problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and realizing her own powerlessness in a way, um, even as a member of one of the most par- of the most powerful country in the world, right, of this global empire, mm-hmm. helps her understand, helps her reflect, and helps her meditate uh, upon, upon that past and that history, uh, which I think is one of the mm-hmm. best things that can come out of traveling is learning how to deal with the past and, um, the violent histories uh, that one can find. Mm, talking about anger, uh, I have a general question about the current age and uh, in terms of immigration and, you know, this country. So since most of the novel takes place during the Bush era, era what do you think about Trump and America today? And uh, how do you foresee the prospect of immigration in this age? Um, I think the novel... One of the reasons why uh, the novel was hard to publish during the Obama era was because people, editors and uh, with and agents just reading the uh, the small snippet would think it was so pessimistic about the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, that the U.S. wasn't really uh, all that terrible for racial minorities that had gotten so much better since Obama. And I think now it's no coincidence that the novel was much easier to to uh, communicate with readers. Um, after Trump was elected. Um, but for me, like my, I think a lot of writers, politicians, and like an activist um, will say that there was a pivotal moment when they were growing up that um, forced them to kind of react politically and artistically. And for me, that moment was the re-election of George W. Bush in 2004, when mm-hmm. it had already come out that, that, you know, his administration had lied to most of the American public about what was happening um, that there were already so many dead uh, piled up from that war and that there were, you know, we're still today living with the consequences 
of that. And yet America still reelected him. <laughs> and I remember when that happened, I became so depressed and um, um, suicidal. And so in the book, um, when the main character is quite suicidal mm-hmm. for the first half um, of the book and sees traveling as a kind of way of, of slowly um, self-emulating in, in a sense. Uh, and I think, some, you know, when those moments come up, they are on one hand, um, you know, terrible, especially for marginalized peoples because things will get worse. But on the other hand, they are also an opportunity in a sense to create some real change or to re- imagine some kind of real change. Right. And so I think that that's mm. one of the lessons of the novel as well is that the characters are able to see different parts, see America from a very different side because of what's happening. That's definitely happening now with, with Trump. As you said, this, this does come from anger and turning that discordant anger into something symphonic. It, it takes an orchestra to do that, right? It takes a community to do that. Um, mm-hmm. So I think banding together and trying to reimagine the way things could be um, is what this opportunity and this moment in history is kind of allowing Mm, yeah, thank you for sharing your vision. And yeah, I'm glad that you can talk about this through your child novels. And then what about uh, the differences of gender in the uh, among the travelers? Because I noticed there are some differences in women versus men traveling. And how do you, how do you distinguish them? I like to approach this question in different ways. Because um, mm-hmm. the main character does transition uh, through the throughout the novel and and um, so not counting him or her, there mm-hmm. are three may, there are three female traveling characters, um, and I mean this also goes to the issue of race too because uh, one of them is a, is uh, seen as a white woman the other one like we said Cambodian refugee mm-hmm. um, another one is uh, the a, a Korean adoptee um, but who can also kind of pass as Filipino because she has curly hair darker skin mm-hmm. uh, and so there's there's a lot of intersections right going on with all the characters in the books, um, but with the female characters. Um, and again, I get this from playing at that background role and listening to the travelers I encountered, mm-hmm. um, but is uh, the kind of vulnerability that women face as travelers much more than men and how the characters mm-hmm. deal with that vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like Melanie, for example, who's uh, raised in this very religious community, a white community in Florida, um, she, her sexuality comes out much more when she's traveling and it's a very um, open sexuality, right? She's, uh, she gets kicked out of South Korea because she's um, uh, making out with another woman on a pool table in the middle of a, of a bar. Right. And so um, to her, she responds to this vulnerability with her sexuality and with a kind of openness. Whereas um, Connie, who is the Korean adoptee, uh, does basically the opposite where she tries, she never, you know, she wears always the kind of same black, dark clothing. Um, and she's very, very sensitive to the way any men are acting around her. Uh, and then in her story, right. Um, one of the characters, Arthur starts to harass her. Um, mm-hmm. and the other characters don't react to it in the way that they probably should. Uh, and make, which makes her of course, feel alone and trapped and horrified. Uh, and so it's about, I, I, so I was trying to kind of capture the different modes, the different ways of embodiment that um, female travelers have when they're um, put in these positions, right? And then mm-hmm. the question, you know, is it even worth it to be in these groups? Um, mm-hmm. And I think by the end of the novel, the, the woman, because they have been um, 
put through these put in these positions, they are the most critical of the other travelers, right? They're they're kind of the ones who come who especially castigate the the white male, um, but they're also uh, continue to be forgiving, mm. um, which I I think was something that I had that when you're an expat an expatriate, you're an immigrant, you end up being very forgiving to the mm-hmm. other. Um, people who speak your language, your community, because you don't have much else. Right. Yeah. Um, And so I I wanted to explore that through those characters. Mm, Yeah. Very interesting. And it's like, uh, sometimes I come across such cases during travels as well. What about the categories of travelers? Because I remember the character Sophia tells uh, Skyla when they first met that the most travelers can be separated into three groups, uh, like sex packs, drugs packs, and eco packs. And the fourth group is exile. Uh, Could you explain these categories? And I know that in academic categories, Categories. We use different terms to describe travelers, including diaspora, or refugees, exiles, extra. So how do you relate uh, these two sets of categories? Uh, yeah, thank you for that question. I like, the, um, I like that that particular part of the novel has been getting more attention by readers and, and reviewers. Um, mm. But that part, that line that you quote, uh, where she talks about how, like, um, we were rejected from our home country and we, we end up rejecting every country, every place and every city that we're in. So our only response is to try and reject them before they can reject us. Right. Um, mm. I think the power of that statement isn't so much about the rejection, but it's about the us that emerges at the end of that sentence. Mm. Um, because mm. suddenly this curmudgeonly anti-travel mode of travel um, becomes communal in a way. Mm. And, and that, um, that there's a lot of strength there, I think. And, and when the travelers find each other, um, hang out, of course, like they end up drinking too much and end up making a lot of mistakes. Um, but they're also as a community able to kind of forgive each other, forgive and forgive themselves for a lot of the things that they go through. Mm-hmm. Um, and because they become uh, these kind of traveling companions, they're able to, to kind of um, come together emotionally and support mm-hmm. each other through this very, very difficult time of, you know, where, of, where most of them are self-destructive, um, suicidal, uh, and going through these very real issues um, and trying to learn about their own country and what it's done. Um, mm-hmm. And I, the other part of that question, I think, is that uh, all of those types of travel are based on pleasures, right? Like you yeah. get pleasure from going to um, this, this forest and the, there's like a kind of eco pat travel, the sex pat travel, obviously the pleasure mm-hmm. of sex. Um, and, but I don't want to make it seem like traveling more critically does, doesn't have its own pleasures, right. And that there's no home for these characters. I think coming together and, and building that community is a kind of home or mm-hmm. feeling, um, you feeling at home in the kind of shaky instability of yeah. mobility um, the pleasures of feeling surprised, you know, by never by never saying that this country is this way or these people are this way, one opens oneself up to the idea that you could always be surprised, right? That if, mm-hmm. if like I'm in China and a Chinese person does something and I don't know what to do with it, I'm mm-hmm. not immediately going to put it into a narrative right? mm-hmm. that's, that's already ready at hand. I'm going to try and um, approach it on its own terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that the, the characters go through a lot of these um, uh, experiences that seem like I hate travel or that travel is horrible. Um, but I think in a way 
they're not happy as travelers and that's totally fine. <laughs> you don't have to be happy, right? Uh, but they're, they're curmudgeonly, I suppose, but they also have, they do experience a lot of pleasure in not quite knowing the spaces they're in, in feeling like outsiders. Um, so I wanted to allow room for that, right? To not just say that they're all victims of something, but they're also enjoying themselves in their own way, even if they don't do it in a, in a way that we recognize as happy and fulfilled. Mm, yeah, um, very interesting. And I'm glad that you um, talked about home. It seems like to me that they come to travel to a place that there are some there are some points that they may find a transitionary home or temporary home that could provide them some kind of pressure by, you know, all these different things or coming to a communal sense of home. Uh, so I, and in some way, I also feel like when they travel, they cannot fit into all the stereotypes that people would try to put in, put them into. So what is homecoming for these characters then? Um. I hadn't really thought about that question uh, because I, so when you, when you asked me that question now, I'm thinking like what's home to me uh, when home was a space of kind of, of like religious and mm. um, homonormative, I guess the way you could put it, but like not queer friendly, I should say uh, mm-hmm. kind of space. Um, you know, so anything that was homely to me was already seen as a kind of uncomfortable mm. space. Um, and I think for a lot of minorities and queer minorities, especially in the U.S., um, home uh, is not found easily, right? Or it's found with mm-hmm. a community, with a kind of um, family that one chooses to have. And so this mm-hmm. is, I think the novel is in a way about people choosing their own family um, mm-hmm. overseas within the dejection that they feel from the communities that are supposed to be home uh, for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the your comparison for like as an immigrant story uh, would be that I suppose in a traditional immigrant story that the home would be seen as the place where there's like the language that you speak, the uh, mm. food that you eat, right? The food that you communicate with. Um, yeah. But with Americans today, that is everywhere, right? You could use your mm-hmm. English everywhere. There's McDonald's or whatever American food you want everywhere. And so home is very fragmented mm. um, in that sense. Uh, and that's, yeah. of course, a symptom of of, the, of imperialism and capital. Um, mm. But it is also kind of, I think, for especially for minorities and, and queer people in the U.S., uh, it, there's a kind of freedom in that. In that, there's no there's no immediate place where home has to be, and so home mm-hmm. can kind of be anywhere, and it can be with whoever mm. you choose it to be. And so there's a kind of freedom I think that um, emerges from that lack of having a space uh, mm. ready for you. Mm. That's very interesting idea um, because it's, it seems like for uh, these travelers, in fact, they have a choice to be home, like anywhere to be their home. So it seems like that Asper itself could be home, which was originally an opposite idea, but it's very interesting. So what about the stamps? Because I found the stamps very intriguing. Amount of all the travel novels I've read probably this is the first time I saw the actual visa stamps in the books and sometimes the visa stamp also include their names and very specific days. Is it um your you know imagination deliberate um attempt to tell something to the readers? Um the the stamps um I planned out but they were designed by um 
a woman named Dom Chung in, in Hong Kong who was very, very good at, at designing these. Uh, and she put up with a lot of my small edits. Uh, but the stamps I wanted to get across as a kind of metaphor. And I never explain it explicitly in the novel because um, I just, usually I don't like it that much in novels when there's they explain their own title or they over explain it. Because um, again, it kind of flattens the novel. Um, mm-hmm. But the, to be stamped is to be flattened. <laughs> back to flattening, right? Um, mm. it, it has roots with to be stomped upon. Um, mm. And so all the characters feel stomped upon, beaten down. And as you might know in America, right, once once you're from China or once you're from a different country, your identity gets flattened into yeah. a certain type of uh, ways of being. So mm-hmm. the characters are all trying to escape their own stamps. Mm. Uh, at the same time, stamped or a stamp as a noun is, does give you access to things, right? It's the stamp on mm-hmm. your passport, um, the stamp of a, uh, like a signature, right? In places like China, uh, where they use stamps to, to validate things. Um, mm-hmm. So even though that feeling of being flattened, uh, of being stomped and beaded down by uh, the society you're in, um, mm. even though that's there, it it does give you a, a way of being seen, which means it does give you a point of access, uh, mm. a kind of privilege or mobility, right? And um, yeah. I think in the novel, uh, Skylar's story is the most <laughs> like this, right? Because he he goes through a lot of changes in the novel. Um, mm-hmm. He you know transitions um, into female for parts of it, uh, and he in the middle of the book when I think he's at his most lowest point, <laughs> he trans- he transitions into a kind of white broish male. Mm-hmm. Because he's being, because a company is basically paying him to do it, uh, so he does it. But um, he doesn't, and he has privilege and mobility. But he also comes with a new stamp, right? That uh, mm-hmm. he feels like he could have an intimacy with many of the locals and the places that he's in. But all of that kind of goes away once he's seen as mm-hmm. a as a as a white uh, male in places like mm-hmm. Thailand, right? Where yeah. he can only be relegated to the role of a client. Right, mm. or someone with power who's then attractive mm. to everyone around him for completely unearned reasons. Right? Mm. And so what, what I think what's ironic in the novel in a way is that he's at his lowest point when he tries to become white, that that whiteness mm. then separates him from the people around him. It relegates him into a role that he cannot um, live with. Um, mm. And of course I'm expi- um, inspired a lot by... Um, someone like George Orwell, like his shooting an elephant, Mm -hmm. right. Which is about Mm -hmm. the white colonial um, being pushed into a role that he hates, but doing it anyways, because that's his only point of access to this space. Mm. And so I think that's one of the points I'm also trying to make in the novel is that once he starts to become these others, can he really understand, you know, white people are not the enemy. (laughs) They are also pushed into roles. Uh, And I think that, then after that happens to him, he's able to grow. Mm-hmm. He spends the next three or four months cooped up in a Korean sauna, right? Trying to figure himself yeah. out, trying to figure out what to do now that mm-hmm. he's um, realized this. Um, and so I think that's that's uh, something I was trying to get at throughout the novel, right? That uh, they all feel stamped in certain ways. And mm-hmm. to put it upon a hierarchy where the white characters in the novel are always having a better time or they're better off than the others, I think is too simple of a way to look at it. Mm, Yeah. What a brilliant idea. I really like the metaphors. Um, And, you know, it's in some ways sounds to me that they are 
you know, trying to use travel as a way to get out of their outsider perspective, but they can't. They maybe push from being one kind of outsider to another kind of outsider. So what's the solution for these characters? Or, or is it no solution? Is the solution in the end? I resisted giving a, a, an easy solution because, again, I, I think the the hope in the novel, if they're, you know, or the uh, the answers that they find in the novel isn't about finding a solution so much as mm-hmm. to recognizing the true gravity of the problem. Mm-hmm. And the true gravity of the problem is the the way the, the history that we described before, um, the 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 role of what it's like to be an American in these spaces, you know, the role of empire, um, and so I, those problems become so immense um, that there's no easy solution. But by recognizing those problems and by facing them, um, and by dealing with the anger that emerges from them, I think that to me that's a very hopeful. Um, thing right is and that's that's a part of growth that I think um, that I'm satisfied with at the end right I don't I don't think mm-hmm. any of the characters are happy <laughs> in a very yeah. normative sense at the end but they've all come to deal with themselves and deal with that history in their own ways yeah, um, mm-hmm. yeah and so I think that that's going to be kind of hard for a lot of readers to take you know, is that there's, you know, there's no easy answers to, to what they're going through. And I think that is exactly the point of, of, yeah. of part of the book, right? That once you've been to these spaces, there's something that emerges that will take a lifetime to truly deal with and understand and try to change. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Uh, we spend a lot of time talking about uh, themes and the topics. And I want to ask you a little bit about the style because I find the narratives in the novel particularly interesting, mixed with chat logs of blog posts and stories. And this narrative somehow reminds me of some other novels, like there's a Chinese novel called Mulberry and Peach, uh, mixed with the travel logs and stories. Uh, I wonder what's the use or what's your goal of using different narratives and how do you shift among them when you're writing? I mean, with the style of the novel, it's trying to like articulate the way people really feel in these spaces, but also to keep a kind of distance mm. from, from what's happening or from them because, uh, travel literature in itself is so riddled with these ways of trying to present, present these spaces as something you can easily access, you know? Mm. And I wanted to keep the spaces in the kind of blur and uh, a space as in that we can't ever truly understand what's going on there. And I'm not going to play the role of, of this kind of cultural ambassador <laughs> that's bringing, you know, this culture to you. Right. Um, and so mm-hmm. I think the style is is very. I'm very consciously trying to take on that style, um, and I'm. I think it's a lot of it has to do also with the books that influenced me a lot, like um, Karen Yamashita's I Hotel, which you're probably familiar mm-hmm. with. Uh, yeah. Teresa Hak Young Cha's uh, Dicte. So I guess it's a kind of mm-hmm. I see it as a kind of punk rock avant garde, mm-hmm. in the sense that the language, as you no- note, is can be very. Um, crass and immature <laughs> through a lot of the novel mm-hmm. um, but it, it still keeps this kind of avant-garde style I think as a way to say that there's more going on here yeah but great um, yeah and 
I have a last couple of questions, but we are running a little out of time. But I,、uh, I do want to ask you about your own identification.、Uh, seems like you know you have a pen name、uh, to use it usually in your creative writing, and then、uh, I remember in one of your articles you call Chinese your people with quotation mark. So、um, I wonder how could you identify yourself. Um, yeah, thanks for that question. I, I,、um, this is one of people that I've I've dealt with, of course, for a long time.、Um, and like, well, my father is a white American, and my mother is、uh, like third generation Filipino, but identifies more ethnically as Hawaiian.、Um, and so she's never been to the Philippines. My grandparents have never been to the Philippines. It's my great grandparents that came over.、Mm. Um, but what I've noticed is once. I claim an identity to myself,、um, uh, and you've already you're already claiming a lot in doing so.、Uh, and, and there's always a narrative out there that will kind of flatten whatever it is that whatever identity you you claim to be, even if you don't think of it in those in in those very terms. This is part of my argument in the in my academic book、uh, is that the power to manage and influence identity. Is one of the like most central ways of seeing how power works today.、Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you think about it, your identity has a lot of influence over just everyday things. You know, no matter、mm-hmm. even if you think of your own identity as very complex and very hybrid,、mm-hmm. um, it does leak into practices like where you want, you know, where you're going to get lunch that day,、uh, what、mm-hmm. country you're going to visit on your on your vacation, right? How are you going to?、Um, Construct your CV, or how you're going to introduce yourself. The, you know, so it's in a very everyday way. Identity is so influential,、mm. um, and that there are so many narratives out there to try and manage and control it, and mo- many of them are state-led or capitalist-led. So I claim more of a kind of Asian North American identity, but I'm also very critical of how that、um, how that operates and how that identity circulates.、Uh, so、mm. I think the character that this is one of the points I think. Uh, that emerges throughout the novel too is that they've all the characters have kind of been taught to think of themselves in a certain way, and only by kind of leaving the U.S. and comparing、uh, mm-hmm. the ways of seeing themselves, in, in like you said, being a certain type of outsider in the U.S. with being a certain、mm-hmm. type of outsider in South Korea, China,、um, mm-hmm. Thailand, are they able to kind of see different means of of seizing an identity? Uh, and what those identities mean in different spaces, right? And so I think that's one thing that travel can do for a lot of people. I've seen it that happen to a lot of people, but I've also seen the opposite, where someone will travel to like Thailand and they'll go on all the tourists, do all the tourist、right. stuff, and they'll come back to America and they'll say, you know, this really confirmed that I am truly a, an American, you know, that I do not, I am nothing like those people,、mm-hmm. um, and I think that's horrible because.、Uh, I feel like one of the main problems of our、uh, our day and age right now is seeing others as totally separate from us. Yeah.、Um, and so the fact that travel now in an age where Americans are actually tra- starting to travel much more, that the tourist、mm-hmm. industry is set up in a way that only makes us feel more American and then feel more <laughs> like either our servants or a, a kind of threatening unknown presence. That that is.、Um, One of the greatest issues of our time, and I think that trying to push against that、uh, is one of the things that I'm trying to do with with this novel. 
Yeah, and I think you did do that very successfully, and I hope、uh, all the readers can benefit from it and learning more about like race, you know, all these issues about travels, immigration, and race.、Um, so our podcast is coming to an end, but do you want to close by sharing a little bit about your current agenda on your both scholarly and creative projects? Yeah, sure, I'd be happy to.、Um, though uh, everything's Kind of in the works, so I don't. I'm not exactly sure how it's going to turn out. But、um, as I mentioned before, and I take this from W. E. B. Du Bois,、um, seeing myself as an artist and a scholar, I don't see them as entirely different. And Du Bois was also a, you know, he wrote Souls of Black Folk, but he, and he was a historian, but he also wrote fiction, like romance fiction.、Uh, he's also a poet,、um, but he saw all of those things as trying to, as part of the same project, and as trying to answer.、Um, The same series of questions, but from different angles.、Uh, and so, I think these two books, which just came out in the same year, my academic book and my fiction book, are both doing that. And so, I've I've come to imagine kind of a new set of problems. And so, I、mm. have a, my next academic book, which is called Open World Empire,、um, mm. is about、uh, video games and digital media and the ways that those influence how we identify.、Mm. Uh, and How those things also reveal empire in the Trans-Pacific, where a lot of the manufacturing for these devices is done in Asia,、um, and a lot of the innovation for them is also done in Asia in places like Japan. So what do what do we do with that? How does that reappear in the media that we're using?、Uh, and then the the fiction part of trying to answer those questions、um, about especially about play and about how we come can come together、um, with when. Things that were once very, very serious are now kind of in the deep digital era. We can kind of play with.、Um, I'm working on a speculative fiction novel, and it's about two souls that are kind of tethered together, somewhat in love with each other.、Um, mm-hmm. And they, this is this might sound a bit like because、um, this the idea is formed when I was in China and Hong Kong,、um, but、mm-hmm. they reincarnate. Constantly into different bodies and different genders, different sexualities, different cultures,、um, and yet continue to kind of find each other、um, all the way until the end of human history, when mankind comes to its end.、Uh, and so, there's I'm trying to look at how I, I myself as an artist can kind of play with things that,、uh, with histories that might be very serious, and how what methods I can kind of use to do that.、Um, and so, those those are the next kind of you know paired. Uh, projects I have. Yeah! Wow! Sounds so fabulous. You know, and we're looking forward to reading your new work and、uh, talking more to you. And it's my pleasure to talk to you today, Kavika. And I know you just moved to Canada, right? Yes. So yeah. So good luck with everything, and hope to talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Thank you all for listening to my interview with Kavika, and see you next time.